This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Christos Anesti, Alidos Anesti. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. A Dr. Gary Chang is standing by, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that time of the year, and invariably... Uh, when we uh, when this time of year rolls around, I love to, to delve into the Shroud of Turin. Uh, it is one of my favorite topics, and uh, we will get to that in just a few moments. Uh, some programming notes. We are not live streaming on YouTube tonight. Uh, however, the the podcast will uh, will eventually find its way there on the YouTube channel. And if you haven't already, please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And again, we've set a modest a goal of 10,000 subscribers sometime in 2017. And, uh, well, we're, we're getting there, slowly but surely. And only you can put us over the top. So, again, hit the subscribe. Again, the YouTube channel is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Albert is not here tonight, but uh, our good man, Ian Robertson, is in the house on the other side of the glass. And I should also note uh, that uh, we are going to go two hours, the entire program, with Dr. Chang speaking about the Holy Shroud of Turin. Uh, Let's see, coming up in the following week, next week on the program, Donald Jeffries. Uh, Donald uh, has been with us uh, several times in the past. Um, The last time we had him on, he was writing about the Hidden History of America, which was an interesting book. The the foreword was written by a very interesting character in American politics, and that would be Roger Stone, who is a, a close friend and kind of an informal consultant to the president, Donald J. Trump. And uh, then the, uh, the second hour of that evening, uh, I'm not sure what we have. It might be open lines. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> In any event, let us get to it. 
I've said this many times, and I, I think I'm pretty on pretty firm ground. It is arguably the most studied artifact in human history. And I'm talking about this remarkable piece of linen, a length of linen cloth known as the Shroud of Turin, which appears to bear the image of a man believed by hundreds of millions of people around the world to be the burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it has, as I say, been uh, studied and studied and studied, uh, perhaps most famously in the late 1970s uh, by uh, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STERP. Then in 1988, there was uh, three carbon-14 dating tests performed, and the scientists were saying, ah, case closed. The carbon-14 dating points to somewhere in the Middle Ages, maybe around uh, 12, 1300. And um, for many, that was the end of it. But, well, as we're going to find out in the next couple of hours, not so fast. There could be a problem with that carbon-14 dating. In any event... Is the Shroud of Turin, in fact, the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ bearing evidence of an actual physical resurrection, or is it a medieval forgery? That's where we're heading for the next two hours. And uh, we're going to do so with Dr. Gary Chang. And uh, he is, uh, once again, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Chang, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Richard. Great to be here. Your first encounter with the, uh, the Shroud of Turin, this goes back to the 1990s, and again... Yes, it does. Your, your, your background in science is, is bi- biology, correct? Yes, it's, it's biology. It's actually neurobiology of uh, looking at simple organ systems in order to decipher essentially how the human brain works. Okay, so you heard a lecture in the 90s on the Shroud, and, and you weren't necess- you were kind of skeptical, I'm guessing. Well, um, actually, no, I, I, actually, I was never skeptical of it. I was actually somewhat, uh, because I've never heard about it before, uh, I was sort of taken back and, and bewildered, uh, but also very pleased to, to know about it. Uh, it certainly was something that resonated with me, and I really appreciated uh, the lecture that I, I, I had actually listened to. Uh, but the lecture was involved or was part of a faith and science uh, international conference at Redeemer University. And, um, and one fellow uh, was talking about the Shroud, because obviously the Shroud uh, intersects faith and science. Uh, but a lot of the uh, talks were essentially philosophy talks or theological talks. And this fellow named Thaddeus Tran uh, gave a talk that, uh, to me, was really an eye-opener because, first of all, I've never heard of the Shroud of Turin, and secondly, I've, I never realized the significance of it. And uh, so that piqued my interest, and it's been like, uh, I mean, he, he introduced it to me. He had his own preferences and his own uh, perceptions of what it actually was. But it was uh, years later when I finally looked more closely into it that it actually uh, opened up a whole new world for me. One of the things, I'm not sure if if this is what Thaddeus Trent said, but a number of scientists have said that when we're talking about the resurrection Mm -hmm. and the shroud Mm -hmm. uh, and the figure, the historical figure, Jesus Christ. Yes. We're getting into, we're stepping outside the natural world. We're getting into the supernatural, and yes. and mm-hmm. this is something that science is not equipped to measure. 
Yeah, well, that's essentially what his talk was about. That was the um, that that was unique about his talk in this faith and science uh, conference. Uh, I mean, faith and science since then has really taken off as a discipline on its own. This was back in the early 1990s, and these days, uh, faith and science is a, a very uh, you know very hot topic in many universities. Uh, but in these faith and science talks, it's really trying to get ways of uh, accommodating, I guess, science into the theology. And really, science has the upper hand, and, and you need to reinterpret theology to, to fit science. Um, I, As you know, I'm not of that bent. Uh, but what Thaddeus Trend was trying to, to show people is that it's very difficult for science to deal with something like this, because the best explanation for it is a supernatural event. And science just doesn't go into the supernatural. Well, as it turns out, there, there are a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, countless things to measure mm-hmm. uh, on, on the Shroud. But yeah. for those not familiar with the Shroud, and as you mentioned, in the early 90s, you had barely even heard of it. I'd never heard of it. That right. was the funny thing. I was like, uh, <laughs> how, old, how old would I have been about then? You know, I'm in my early 30s back then. Right. So, and, uh, but but it, for those not familiar with it, uh, yeah. give us a thumbnail sketch of, of what this linen cloth housed at uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral mm. in Turin, Italy, looks like. Yeah, well, it's essentially a rectangular sheet, uh, linen cloth. It's about three and a half feet wide and about 14 feet long. So it would resemble, you know, the, uh, a long, uh, narrow tablecloth to put on a long rectangular table. That's, that's what essentially it looks like. And, um, and other, other than looking very old and stained, uh, the most significant thing about this cloth is that it has on it the photographic image of a human body, both the front of the body and the back of the body, and uh, and the way the image is on the cloth, you can tell that this cloth was laid down, and then the body was put uh, on one side of the cloth, and then the other end of the cloth was pulled over the head of the body, and that's what has left an imprint on the cloth. And it's not the cloth per se that is is uh, causes any problem. Uh, it's the image on the cloth. What is that image? How did it get there? And how could something if it were medieval, how could something have been uh, created as a photograph back in the medieval times? And the, and the photograph taken at the, just before the end of the, uh, the 19th century yeah. by Seconda Pia, yes. that was a real jaw-dropper, because what did that photographic image tell us? Well, uh, one of the things I have to do uh, when I describe this to people is... Today, I have to explain to them what film photography is. <laughs> That's true for a <laughs> couple know, of old codgers no, like us. No one, well, there, there are a few people who still send, you know, uh, film, you know, negatives into a processor, uh, processing to get it printed up. But we don't do that anymore. You know, every picture we take, we, it comes up on our computer, on our phones, or on our, our, our cameras, and it looks like the picture that we just took. What we call a positive image. Well, we call a positive. Uh, people don't realize that before that developed, well, I guess back in probably in the 1990s, um, uh, before that happened, uh, all photography that was worth anything was done on film. But you had to, uh, so the, the light was 
captured by the camera or by the film in the camera and that film in the camera was sent away to get processed and then you got uh, your your prints <laughs> well i have to explain that to people now because they uh, i realize when i describe what secunda pia did uh, some of the younger kids look up and say, well, what on earth does that mean? What big deal? <laughs> so, so briefly, what it is is that, and as you know, and as, as us old-timers know, is that if you take a picture with the old cameras that had film inside them, you had to take that film and get it developed. Well, that film, gets, when it gets developed, it, uh, it's essentially a reverse of what you saw with respect to light. And so things that were light in your real uh, scene became dark, and things that were dark became light. So, so a negative image. Yeah, so you get the negative image. And then in order to get the positive image, you then need to take uh, another process where you shine light through that negative and make a shadow onto a photographic paper. And that's how you get your photograph, your positive, okay? Well, Secunda Pia, that's what he did. Uh, back at the time when he was doing uh, photography, that's, that's what they were developing. Kodak was just starting to get into it, uh, and, uh, but a lot of people were, making, uh, were amateur photographers, making their own plates, doing their own chemistry. And so what Pia had to do is he had to take his camera and take a picture of the shroud, and, uh, of course, he had to... Uh, it wasn't automatic like we've had it as automatic, where you just, you know, uh, point your camera and, and uh, press the button, right? But he needed to make sure it was exposed long enough. He needed to make sure lighting was proper. Of course, he, the electric lights just came out at that time, and so he had to play around with that. So he had to do a lot of experimenting to make sure he would get a picture of this, this shroud. And, of course, the shroud was only brought out, and that's another point people don't realize. The shroud, up until, you know, more recently, up until the last 20 years, the shroud was only brought out maybe once every 40 years. Right, kept in a silver box. That's right, and, and so people never really saw it, and, they never, and there were no cameras to take pictures of it before. And even if you could see it, you, yeah. you, you, it was a, such a faint outline, right. almost you, like a, so, a water stain. Exactly, and, and so... Even now, like you know, I, I own my own uh, replica of the shroud, uh, life-size replica, and you know that unless sometimes unless I point out people where the face is, they don't see it. it it's it's that that the the contrast is so so um, poor. So we're heading into a break here, uh, Dr. Yeah. Chang. Okay. Uh, just uh, we have about sixty seconds. So just tell us what that what what's so remarkable about the well, photograph of Sacondapia. Well, what was so remarkable is that when he took a photograph, he took the film uh, to his darkroom and he developed the negative. And he thought he would see in the negative uh, something that was, was even less comprehensible than he saw in the, pot, in the real shroud. But as he was looking at his uh, film developing, instead of a negative, he actually saw the full... Uh, very recognizable, distinct image of a positive print. And so he knew immediately that the picture he had taken of was not a painting, but had to be a photograph of some sort. And he was absolutely bewildered. And the, that means that the, neg the, the image on the shroud is, is actually a negative, a negative image. Yeah. And there's no way 
anyone, even today, could have painted it. Let alone in 1350. Yeah. We'll come back with uh, Dr. Gary Chang, a professor at Redeemer College in uh, Ancaster, Ontario, Canada, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Dr. Gary Chang, The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, Dr. Chang is with us for the full two hours. So we were talking about the photograph of a Seconda Pia, which demonstrated, and this is back in the, the late 19th century. It was 1898. There you go. Uh, that the image on the shroud is mm -hmm. a negative image, very difficult. Which, uh, which means it was a photograph of some sort. Right. So, uh, let's go back to 1978 and okay. uh, the, um, the Shroud of Turin uh, research project, STIRP. Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of the tests they did. I mean, they were using equipment developed by NASA. They did, um, well, I mean, I, you go to the website uh, that Barry Schwartz has put together. Barry Schwartz was the official photographer of the event. He was a very young man at the time. And uh, and uh, he now has a website that um, that shows all this information. They publish a number of scientific papers on it. Um, they use all sorts of uh, different photographic techniques, uh, different types of cameras. They did everything they could, except they did not touch the shroud. Uh, but before they had access to it, the same same uh, event. Uh, another fellow by the name of Max Fry had a chance to take sticky tape samples from the shroud. Uh, in fact, when he was doing that, the Americans were horrified because here was a guy actually touching the thing. <laughs> right, right. And, and uh, there's a famous photograph where uh, uh, Jackson of the American team was prevented Fry from actually touch, get, getting at the shroud. And, and, uh, and so uh, eventually they they came to an agreement that he could take these sticky tape samples, but he couldn't touch the face. But the Americans were extremely careful. They didn't, uh, they, if, when they did touch it, there was a very light touch, but most of their stuff was on uh, photographing it. Uh, they, did, they took some fibers for chemical analysis as well, so they were allowed uh, some uh, small fibers for doing that. And um, and so essentially, what they were doing was trying to uh, trying to prove that it was a fake. That's what all of them were trying to do. Even Barry Schwartz figured that he would go there, take a few pictures of the brush marks, and uh, showing that it's a fake, and then come away. Uh, all of them were dumbfounded that they could not find anything that would show that this was a fake in any way. And they did a lot of different tests. Um, and as I said, it, it is, um, it, it's something that, unfortunately, they, uh, uh, when you look at it, look at it in hindsight, 
they were scientists, and what they were looking for was something to say that this thing was a fake. They couldn't find anything. In fact, they found more evidence to show that it was authentic. And because they couldn't say it was a fake, they really didn't admit to saying anything about it. <laughs> that was the odd thing. And instead, what they did was to leave the impression that it still required tests in order to find out what this is. And of course, all that sort of led towards the uh, carbon dating in 1988. Right. Now, let's just put the, the artifact or the relic Yes. In some historical context, okay. we we have we have a, uh, a a length of linen cloth about fourteen feet. Yes, it's a is the the weave. It's a herringbone weave. Mm -hmm. Is that in, consistent with the burial rites of let's say first or second century Jerusalem? Yes, it's consistent. It, everything historical, everything physical about it is historically correct. And so the, and that type of weave, is it specific to that region and time period? Uh, from my understanding, it's not completely specific. Uh, it's not something that would say, yes, it is definitely that cloth. Uh, but it is, there's nothing that would say it can't be. All right. Okay, I mean, I, I know that's sort of beating around the bush. But uh, the only thing that actually verifies that this thing is the actual berry cloth is not the cloth itself it's the image on the cloth right and we will get around to that yeah. uh, in fact but but there's there are some people who say that maybe um, you know it, it shouldn't be what it is but then when they look at it even closer they find that no they were wrong it actually is what it's supposed to be <laughs> uh, and so uh, so uh, what I would would say that the forensic evidence or even the archaeological evidence uh, suggests that it would have originated in the, from the Palestine region. All right. So let's talk about the forensics. Let's yeah. talk about, and you mentioned this uh, replica that you have, and I, and I mm -hmm. have seen it uh, myself, and it is, it's quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. uh, and you pointed out all the various, uh, the wounds and so forth. Let's talk about the forensics, the the wounds on the body and how yeah. they would correspond to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Well, the um, wounds on the body were uh, first really looked at um, by a individual called uh, Vignon. Um, I may not have pronounced that properly. <laughs> uh, a French uh, scientist uh, and artist uh, who saw a picture of um, Saul Pia's picture uh, back in the early 1900s. And uh, so when Pia produced the picture, of course, there was a huge um, uh, reaction to it. People were really amazed. Uh, but you, you've got essentially two types of people when we actually look at the shroud. And I sort of mention this in my book and try to elaborate on that because we fall into one of the two types. There's the type who really want to believe, and there's the type who refuse to believe. And so what happened is that after Pia produced this picture and people thought this was amazing and, yes, it can't be a painting, then someone suggested uh, that it was a painting and found some historical evidence to back in the 1300s that suggested that it could be a painting. 
okay? So, but at the same time when all this controversy was happening, this picture landed in a, um, in a uh, lab in France, and a couple people there were looking at it, and one person really wasn't concerned by it. He was actually a, a Roman Catholic. But another guy who was an agnostic was really uh, disturbed by it because he said, this doesn't look like a, like a painting at all. And so he actually asked uh, this other fellow, who was a Roman Catholic, uh, Vignon, to take a look at the picture. Uh, look at the wounds. If this is a painting, a painter would have somehow made a mistake and something would not jive with uh, what we know about anatomy and what we know about torture and injury. And so what Vignon did is that he went and he looked, he mapped all the, the wound marks, and he realized that the wound marks were actually created by a Roman flagum, which has a ball-bearing type things at the end of the whip, and it digs out the flesh. And those are the imprints that are on the body. No medieval painter would have ever known that. The other thing is that the the pattern of the uh, of the whips on the back and on the front and on the calves and the, across the buttocks represent uh, can be explained by two people doing the whipping. Okay, and another thing that a artist would never have been able to put onto a picture. Uh, another thing that he noticed is that the blood stains that go down the arm in the photograph. These blood stains don't run all the way down the arm. Like uh, if you look at where the wrist is and you've got a blood stain at the wrist, uh, the blood stain then disappears and then is picked up again on the forearm. An artist, uh, so that means that the cloth came in contact with the body and the blood stains in turn were picked up by the cloth touching the body. But in the places where the cloth didn't touch the body, the blood stains weren't picked up. A painter would have never realized that. Right. In other words, if a forger, if yeah. this was a medieval forger and this was, in fact, painted on, yeah. uh, he would have had to have an incredible, incredibly sophisticated knowledge, uh, uh, knowledge of mm -hmm. anatomy yeah. and forensics. And also the blood. The way the, the, he, he looked at, now again, Vignon only had the black and white pictures. And they were the first pictures ever taken, so they weren't, you know, your top quality picture. But he can look at the picture, and he can look at the pattern that the blood stain made, and the blood stain in the picture made exactly the same pattern a blood stain would make on a piece of cloth. It cannot, that blood stain pattern cannot be reproduced by paint. And talk to me about the, uh, the, the puncture wounds around the head and the significance mm -hmm. of those. Well, the puncture wounds around the head appear to be, uh, could be explained by a, um, you know, by a crown of thorns being placed. Uh, now, with respect to the blood stains around the head and the actual appearance of it, I mean, an artist would have known that anyways. Okay, an artist would have, could have probably put that in. But it's, it's the actual shape and, of the blood stains. The blood stains aren't created by paint. They were created by blood, and that's what Vignon showed. Another thing that Vignon showed uh, became known as the Vignon markings, and he was not just a, um, a student of anatomy and physiology. He was also a, a, a uh, well-established painter. 
and he had his paintings displayed in, in uh, Paris art galleries. Uh, so he knew all about the different pictures that were created in the Bez- since the Be- Byzantine time. I might have pronounced that wrong. A Byzantine. Byzantine, okay. Mm-hmm. They, he knew all about those pictures of, of the Christ and, and what they looked like. And there was a specific time, if you go back in history, there's a specific time when all of a sudden all the pictures of the Christ started to look similar. And what he did is that he mapped on these different pictures things that were similar. Now, there are some things that are simply similar because that's the shape of our head. There's a open square between the eyebrows. Uh, that is very similar to all human beings. But there's certain things like the twist of the hair across the forehead or the slash across the, um, across the neck uh, near the chin. Those are very specific for the shroud. And all of these, most of these pictures have that on it, which indicated to him that this that this uh, image was seen by people long before the 1300s. Right, because because uh, many researchers or many historians have claimed that the shroud suddenly appears in 1350 and has no history beyond that. And and that's where they're mistaken because um, I, again, uh, the analogy I use is that people think that dinosaurs were discovered recently. Yeah, but dinosaurs were given the name dinosaur in the 1800s. They were l- known long before then. <laughs> it's just that they weren't called dinosaurs. Uh, the same thing with, uh, with the uh, Shroud of Turin. If you realize that it's actually the Medellion or the cloth of Edessa, it goes all the way back to Turkey and all the way to the Palestine with the disciples. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out, uh, uh, Gary, and uh, perhaps we can circle back and touch on on that point, the history. But I want to get uh, more into the forensics, also okay. how this lines up with the uh, uh, the gospel. Okay. And uh, we'll do all of that and much more with Dr. Gary Chang, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back talking about the Holy Shroud of Turin, the most studied relic and artifact in human history, a remarkable uh, piece of linen cloth about three feet wide and 14 feet long, housed at the uh, St. John uh, the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, Italy. And uh, hundreds of millions of people believe it to be the, uh, the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ, and further, that it, it bears witness uh, to the resurrection event itself. Uh, Dr. Gary Chang is uh, with us, and he is a uh, professor at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the forensics before we move on. Okay. And uh, the, uh, the other wound that is, is interesting, yes. uh, that is a, a post-mortem wound mm-hmm. uh, in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. And um, first of all, 
describe the wound and how do we know it's po a post-mortem wound and why is that significant? Uh, well, okay, the, the wound appears um, just under the rib cage, uh, slightly towards the left-hand side, and um, it is significant uh, because it bears witness to the gospel accounts. Um, when um, the Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate was actually uh, a bit confused because Jesus should not have died so soon. And so he sent soldiers out to make sure that Jesus was dead. And uh, one of the things that is done in order to ensure that your crucified victim is dead is that you take a spear and you plunge it in under his ribcage towards his heart. And in the Gospel of John, that is what the soldier is described as doing. And out from the, um, the uh, wound came water and blood. And so uh, that is... So that spear wound on in his side, I'll, again, I'm a little bit confused. It, it's, near, it, it's, it's near where the heart is. could be slightly on the side. But it's, um, it's shown quite clearly on the uh, shroud, and it appears that the blood had leaked from the body onto the shroud and pooled along his back. Uh, so the... Thing about um, the theological significance about this is that people at one time thought that John, writing this, didn't really see this. Instead, he is saying that what's the importance of water in Christianity, and uh, water coming out of Christ is the same as saying that the Holy Spirit comes out of Christ. That's, that's so. That's the analogy that people were uh, were. Uh, or the, the reason they think that John might have described that. Well, after Vignon did his work, uh, he, did, um, he didn't have actually, uh, well, uh, he had some access to cadavers, but it was now, we, that we look now at the 1930s. Um, now, what's interesting about the, what happened in 1931 is that this was the first time the shroud was being displayed since 1898. And uh, Secunda Pia was actually accused of faking the photograph. And he lived most of his life with that. And they could never take, they couldn't take a picture of the, of the shroud because it wasn't ever brought out again until 1931. And in 1931, they made every effort to make sure they got the right photograph, they got it done properly, and it does. It was in fact a negative, and it wasn't anything to do with Secundipia's uh, technology. Well, that picture at that time, which is the, the Giuseppe Henri's picture, it too then ended up in France. <laughs> and at this time, a person by the name of Pierre Barbet who was a uh, surgeon and an anatomist who, at, at the in Paris, had a chance to look at this, and he set out to try and uh, do some experiments on tissue to see if it was would um, verify the image that we see on the cloth. I'm going to jump in here now, uh, Gary, because we're heading into another break. Okay. 
We'll come I'm, back. I'm and, going off on a tangent. No, it's, <laughs> this is all important information. Okay. So when we come back, we'll uh, con- we'll finish off on the uh, the forensic aspect. Okay. And then we'll get into the uh, the gospel accounts and and much more to discuss. Yeah. The Holy Shroud of Turin. Dr. Gary Chang, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, We are back uh, with Dr. Gary Chang. And just a reminder, he'll stay with us for the full two hours. Richard Serrett, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Uh, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back to the forensic evidence we were talking about. The, uh, of course, in the in the gospel account, mm-hmm. the Roman centurion yeah. uh, takes the, um, the uh, spear right. and uh, and jabs uh, Jesus while he was he's on the cross, right. uh, mm-hmm. in order to make sure that um, that he was dead. That he was dead. Yes. And uh, so there was a second series of photographs mm-hmm. uh, taken in 1931. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to reconfirm Seconda Pia's photo that was taken in 1898. This photograph was taken to a, was it a, f- a French surgeon? Uh, this photograph was, uh, then ended up in the hands of a French surgeon. Okay. Who was asked by a friend of his who was a Catholic priest if he would just take a look at it and tell him what he thinks. And his findings were what specifically and, and what we about the uh, wound? Of, yeah, what we were talking about was the significance of this spear in the side and the flow of water and blood from the, uh, from the wound, as the, described in the Gospel. Uh, what um, the surgeon did, uh, Pierre Barbet did, is that he actually took a cadaver of a recently deceased person, and he uh, took a syringe, and he put the syringe in exactly the same place where the wound was, in the same direction the spear would have went. And what he noticed is that he pushed at a certain distance, and started to pull things out, he actually got clear fluid. And he put it in any further, he actually got uh, blood. And so he took a knife and he jabbed it, and what he got coming from this dead body was in fact water and blood. And so what John actually saw, uh, or actually described in the Gospel of John, was what he actually saw. It has nothing to do with any theology about water is that when, it, when the spear is plunged into a dead body at that point, what happens is it goes first through the pericardium, which surrounds the heart, and that's a clear fluid. And so it looks like water. And then as it goes further in, it cuts into the cavity of the heart, and then the blood comes out. So again, and, and there is uh, evidence of uh, this, is this what they call vascular bleeding? Uh, it might be, <laughs> uh, but but this <laughs> this mixture of um, what appears to be water, this clear liquid mixed the, with the, the blood. Clear, the clear liquid that came out came from the um, 
from the guest plasmas, which right. would lack the hemoglobin, which makes it red. All right, and this, they, they can do chemical analysis on the shroud and determine that that's real blood and that's real... Oh, yeah, they've, they've already done... In fact, it's not just... Well, they've done the chemical analysis to show that it is real human blood. Uh, they, but they've also done different uh, types of cameras to show that the blood has a, a halo around it. And that halo represents the plasma separating from the, the actual red blood cells and hemoglobin. And so, again, a painter would have never been able to do that. Uh, no, not probably today and never mind no, back in, in 1350. It, it's something that's not created by paint. The, uh, there's, a, there's something else interesting. I, I, I seem to recall you pointing this out when I was standing before your exact replica mm. of the shroud. And there's, um, there is a kind of a scuff mark or a, or a scrape on the knee mm -hmm. uh, of this figure on the shroud. Mm -hmm. The significance of that is... Well, uh, I mean, this person, whoever it was, went through quite a bit of... Um you know, uh, humiliation, quite a bit of torture. Uh, he was scourged. Um, in fact, it is thought if it is Jesus Christ, uh, there were, some people claim that Pilate was hoping that after the scourging, it was so bad, he, he wanted it bad because he wanted the Jews to say, okay, that's enough, we're not going to kill him. He, did, he didn't realize what he was doing. Uh, but essentially, he... he um, he was doing what was already prophesied uh, in the Old Testament. But isn't there a but, gospel account where, where, as Jesus is carrying the cross on his, dragging the cross on his shoulder, he falls to one knee? Well, um, I'm not sure about that. Um, there is the, they, they did ask a, a fellow per, uh, person who was in the crowd to carry the cross for him. So, yes, there is the impression that obviously he stumbled. Right. Okay, right. but there is so much that has been written into it as folklore that when, in fact, uh, I, I, I describe that in my book where I was surprised when I went to the Gospels to try and figure out exactly what the Gospels tell me, that it, they, weren't, they weren't saying what I thought they were. Because I have, you know, I've heard the, the Easter story so many different ways and so many different times that you just, actually get muddled as to what really happened. Uh, for example, they talk about the, there's the, uh, the traditional belief in something called Veronica cloth, where Veronica stepped out and wiped Jesus' face. I mean, this was, these are all part of the Stations of the Cross for the, for the Roman Catholics, but not every one of them is actually part of the Gospel. It's read into the Gospel that it could have happened here or it could have happened there. Uh, but uh, you've got to be very careful about this. Uh, so when you ask me the, the question, you know, did he fall on his knee? Maybe he did, but uh, offhand I, I would want to go back and to actually recount exactly what the four gospel writers are telling me. The, the, um, the stigmata wounds. Uh, most, most artistic renderings mm -hmm. of the crucifixion, of course, showed Jesus nailed through the hands, the palms yeah, so, of the hands. Right. Mm -hmm. But the wounds on the uh, there are no uh, nail wounds in the hands. They are in the wrists. That's right. And they sort of come out the top of the hand. And this, is, this has been tested because we now know that a human b body, if you were to be nailed through the hands, the yes. nail would slip through the, 
the, the weight of the body is too much. The nails yeah, slip right those through. Yeah, um, now Vignon was had um, access to cadavers, and he realized if he nailed the hand to a board on a cadaver and tried to lift the cadaver up, it would simply tear through the fleshy part of the hand. It would have to go through the wrists. Right. Okay, so, so that was the one thing that they reasoned, but they didn't really get a chance to test it on things that were recently dead. It was Barbette uh, in the 1930s who had access to recently dead people, or he had access to arms that had been recently amputated. So he really had real flesh he can work with. And so what he did is that he, he knew ahead of time already that putting it through the palm would not um, hold the body to a cross. In fact, anyone who would be crucified with their hands uh, or with the nail through the palm, they can simply pull their hand right off of that. And so it had to be fixed somehow. And the shroud shows uh, that the wound goes through the wrist. And so he actually took these recently amputated hands or arms, and he drove a square uh, nail, just like they would use for crucifixion, through the wrist. And what he was surprised to find is that he didn't break any bones. Instead, it went, it made its way through a passageway. Of course, you have to force it, but it didn't break the bones. The bones came apart through the wrist, and it always came out in exactly the same spot on the other side of the hand. And so the Romans knew exactly where to find that spot when they're crucifying their victims and how to actually put it through. And it always, and Barbette did it on a number of different uh, arms, and it always came out the same way. No matter how he tried to turn the nail, it always came out and went through the other side in exactly the same place where the wound on the shroud is. And this is this it gets interesting because again this gets into the details of the of the forensics and if it was a forgery, here's yeah. how much knowledge they would have to have on on the I guess would you call it the pectoral, um, the the um, you've got the dorsal image, yeah. Then you've got the, um, the well I would call it ventral. Okay, uh, on that image when you see the hands, yeah. The thumb is tucked under. You don't yeah, see the thumb. Yeah, that's the thing that Barbette discovered, because he was using uh, tissue that was still living. And when the nail went through the wrist, it hit the nerve that caused the thumb to pull in towards the palm. And that explains why there's, there's no thumb present on the picture on the shroud. Whereas all medieval paintings always show the five digits, always show the thumb. And so what happened is that uh, when the, um, the nail was put into the hand, the thumb came across, the person died, and the thumb stayed stuck, really, into the palm. And so when they uh, brought the hands down over the body and wrapped the body, the thumb was not exposed. Uh, now, the the presence of paint yes. on the shroud. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, when when people say that the image, oh, it was simply painted, they've discounted that because 
the paint would sink into the fiber. That's right. This image is just on the upper, I guess, fibrils? On the very, very top fibrils of the uh, fibers. It is very, very superficial. It's almost as if it's been singed. Yeah, exactly. That's how they describe it. They describe it as a singe. It could be a burn. It could be an acid burn. Uh, whatever it is, it's a very, very faint discoloration of the very top fibril. And if you remove that top fibril underneath it, there's no image. And you can't do that with paint? No, but there are people who claim, uh, Walter McCrone was one such individual, who claimed using micros microscopes that he can see pigment fibers sure. on the shroud. Well, the only problem with that is that there's an explanation for pigment on the shroud. Uh, and secondly, none of that pigment is associated with the actual image. The image, as you've already mentioned, is this coloration uh, due to some sort of singe or burn. Uh, it's not paint. Uh, but there are people who believe that because someone, they found some paint pigment on it, then it must be a painting. They are not looking at the shroud. They're looking at, essentially, paint pigments on the cloth. And the explanation for that is that whenever the shroud was taken out, uh, there would be people who would paint uh, or try to duplicate it, because obviously they didn't have cameras to take pictures. And one of the things that they would do to uh, impart the spirituality or the force or whatever from the shroud onto the painting, they would press the painting against the shroud. Sure. And, well, yeah, <laughs> you end up getting paint on the cloth. Right, or if you had an icon, a painting, an icon, you would bring it and you would you want it close to yeah. the shroud and you, and some of that would invariably or and, inevitably... Yeah, and in the end, I just, in a sense, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated. Uh, and this is why I, I talk a little, about, a little bit about people's attitude and how you fall into two camps. Either you want to believe or you refuse to believe. And those who refuse to believe that it is not a painting, refuse to actually look at it. They don't look at the image. They look at these little fibers and say that, oh, look, it's got paint pigments on it, so therefore it's a painting. But look at the image. There's no way that thing could have ever been painted. Dr. Gary Chang, a professor at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He'll stay with us. Uh, into the next hour as well. The the uh, the image, as you mentioned, it's as verified by uh, Seconda Pia and then later in the 1930s another photograph, the image mm -hmm. on the shroud is a negative image. Yes. But it's more than a negative image. It's, yes. It, it contains three-dimensional yeah. information. Mm -hmm. now, we've got about a minute here before the break. We'll start talking about that now and we'll carry on yes. after the break. So talk to me about the 3D information. Well, people don't understand that because essentially, or they don't understand the significance of that because essentially we've got so much, um, you know, special imagery on in movies and things like that. But quite frankly, there is no way anyone can create a two-dimensional painting that can have in it three-dimensional information. That is an absolute impossibility. And yet the Shroud of Turin is a picture that has three-dimensional information in it. 
All right. There you have it. We'll uh, come back on the other side. Uh, Dr. Gary Chang stays with us on this very special Pascha or Easter edition of The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the Holy Shroud of Turin. My name is Richard Serrett. My website is strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in the Liberty Village of Toronto, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Those of you catching us on one of our affiliate stations, uh, the podcast, of course, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who um, uh, check us out on the um, the YouTube uh, channel, which is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so. And those of you who take the show with you uh, using uh, our uh, our app on your mobile device, either the Zoomer Radio app or the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads. However, and wherever you're listening... I bid thee the warmest of welcome, and I uh, thank you for your fine company. Uh, Dr. Gary Chang uh, from Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario, stays with us, and uh, we continue to delve into the most studied artifact in human history, uh, very appropriate uh, for the Easter season, Pascha. Uh, And again, um, I uh, I wish all of you a um, a happy Christmas, or a happy Easter, rather. (laughs) Uh, The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the the shroud, the image on the shroud, and not only is it a negative image, uh, it also also contains three-dimensional information. So what does that mean exactly? How do we know that? Uh, We know that because uh, there are two things you can do with this. now, computer technology has really advanced since the 1970s, but in the 1970s, there was a special uh, type of image analyzer called a VP8. And this image analyzer actually took electronic information from uh, the, sat- from the uh, space probes that were sent out into space, and uh, they could then take that electronic information, send it back to Earth, and this VP8 analyzer was able to make a three-dimensional image from it uh, because of the uh, information, the electronic information that was sent back. 
So keep in mind that the VP8 is taking electronic information that has within it uh, three-dimensional information. So it's not taking a picture. Instead, it's taking information about what the, about what the probe sees and converts it into a picture. So you cannot take a VP8 analyzer and put into it the picture, any, any picture, uh, and s expect to see it analyze and duplicate it as what that picture is. It's always distorted. Right. In other words, a, a photograph or a, or a painting right. is two-dimensional. It only That's has two-dimensional right. information. So we, we can see a photograph, and we know from our experience what depth is, and so we can interpret the photograph as we interpret the world around us. But there's only one photograph that's ever been created that actually you put through a VP8 analyzer and it comes out with a three-dimensional image of the human being. And that's the picture on the shroud. Uh, so that would strongly suggest that at the moment that that image was transferred Mm -hmm. onto the linen cloth, mm -hmm. it had to be draped over a three-dimensional object or well, it's, body. It, it's more than that. This is what people don't realize. Um, the picture on the shroud, because when you take, take a look at, when you take a look at the negative, okay, which is now the positive, you can see this picture of a man. Okay? So you can see that, all right? It's a picture, and you can see it's a picture of a man, and so it had to have been draped over a cloth. Okay, that you can see. But what you can't do is that you can't take that picture, if it were really a picture, and put it through a VP8 analyzer and come out with a three-dimensional image. Right. It would be distorted. It, it would be distorted. But it's not distorted. So this is more than a photograph. And that's what people don't realize. Uh, for example, there was a, a picnic at Prince a few years ago claimed that Leonardo da Vinci, using a crude type of photography, was able to create this image on the cloth in the negative. That can't happen because it's not really a photograph. It's got photographic properties, but it's really a pack full of technical information that can be used to create a three-dimensional image. Now, I don't uh, recall whether you, you, you delved into this in, in your book, The Holy Shroud of Turin, and we should point out um, that this book is available. Uh, you can order it. Just go to www.custance, C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E dot org, custance.org, and that's uh, the Arthur Custance Center for Science and Christianity. Again, it's www.custance.org, C-U-S-T, a-N-C-E. Um, not only does the image, is the image, does the image contain three-dimensional information, mm -hmm. but it also, the way the hair falls, mm -hmm. uh, the, um, uh, the way that the skin is hanging on the body, it's not uh, sort of squished down as if it's lying flat on a surface. Mm -hmm. It suggests that the image was hovering in a vertical position mm -hmm. when the image was transferred from the body onto the cloth. Yeah, there are two explanations for that. One is the hovering explanation, which is uh, promoted by a physicist in Europe, and that's a more recent one. 
another is uh, Jackson's suggestion that the as the body uh, dematerialized, the cloth fell through the body, and that would give the same explanation. Hmm. So, I mean, the what we don't know. Well, I mean, what you are doing right now is we're speculating. Okay, we are saying, okay, it is real. So therefore, let's speculate as how it could have been created. Now, I just wish that people could get past that so that they, we can do this. But most people can't even get to the point of saying it's real. Right. Despite uh, the overwhelming forensic evidence, yes. the anatomical evidence, yeah. even uh, uh, the field of botany uh, mm. enters into this uh, because, well, tell us about the pollen samples. Well, the pollen samples, unfortunately, uh, is really now lost information because the person who was dealing with all that died before he could get everything together, which was unfortunate. But what he claimed, and this is the problem, we can't actually verify what he claimed, but he was a well-known uh, forensic scientist, uh, this Max Fry, and he said he found pollen grains on it that could only come from the desert region in Palestine and were not present in medieval Europe. And so he, that was one of the claims, one of the uh, evidences or forensic evidence to indicate its authenticity. And uh, when the body was anointed, when mm -hmm. Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb, the burial tomb, and was anointed, yeah, um, were there flowers and, and certain herbs placed inside the shroud with the body that matched those pollen samples? Um, I'm not sure about that. He wasn't really... The, the notion of flowers on the body came about as a result of someone taking the Giuseppe photograph and seeing some type of flower pattern on the uh, image. Um, but in many cases, um, I mean, some people uh, believe that, uh, but that was long after Max Fry had done his pollen work. Uh, but I have, you know, now that I have access to an exact replica, I've tried to duplicate the same area and looked at in the negative where these, these, these petals are supposed to be. I don't see that. So it's actually the result of the type of, uh, you know, chance, uh, chance precipitation of the silver grains uh, in the Giuseppe negative that, that gives the impression that, oh, yeah, this could be uh, flowers or these could be coins over his eye. When you actually take the the uh, the uh, replica and and I take pictures of it and I and I inverse it, uh, I don't see it. So um, those have been used as sort of corroborative evidence that the shroud's real, but mm, it's really uh, a bit weak. Um, I, I want to dial back just for a moment of, uh, to the forensics mm -hmm. um, because this is also significant. Uh, according to the, the uh, Roman custom of crucifixion, or the, the barbaric practice of crucifixion, mm -hmm. um, in order to hasten the death yeah. of the, the victims, they would, they would uh, break the leg. That's right. Uh, so that the legs could no longer support the weight of the body, mm -hmm. and then the person would essentially just sort of suffocate and, and, and drown. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what is significant about 
the image on the shroud as it pertains to that particular aspect of crucifixion? Well, the image on the shroud would suggest that there are no broken limbs. And so his legs were not broken. And that also coincides with the spear in the side that the Roman uh, soldier put in to see if Christ was dead. Again, this all stems from Pilate not believing Jesus was dead yet. And what a number of people don't realize is that if Jesus uh, were to have died because of crucifixion, he would not have been dead yet. It w he would probably have to have his legs broken uh, or, the, or the spear would have, it would killed him. Okay, so... so um, <laughs> But he was already dead long before they believed he should have died. And what people don't realize is that crucifixion did not kill Jesus. Jesus willingly gave up his life. Interesting, interesting. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm speculating here, that they have been able to um, identify the bones, for example, of, of the victims of Roman crucifixion, and in, in, uh, invariably the legs would have been broken. Well, uh, again, I, I'm not sure if they've been able to do that, but they know that that was one of the ways that you would hasten death in order for the, the victim would die and then they can take him down before nightfall. Right, and the fact that, that the image, the, 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 the man on this cloth did not have his legs broken, that again it lines up with the, the, right. the account in the Gospel. Well, the, the other point is that people say, um, okay, let's, let's say that this is a real burial cloth, okay? Uh, let's say that it is at the time of Christ, okay? Let's just give them that. How do you know it's Christ? Well, it's, there's so many things that coincide with the gospel accounts that the chances of it not being Christ is very, very low. All right. We'll uh, step away again momentarily and continue on the other side with Dr. Gary Chang from Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Dr. Gary Chang from Redeemer University, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin. And again, if you'd like to pick up a copy, uh, go to www.custance.org. And Custance is C-U-S-T, 
A-N-C-E, C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E dot org, and that's the Arthur Custon Center for Science and Christianity. And uh, just go on to the menu, and there's a, uh, an online um, a bookstore, uh, and we've also linked up to that uh, on my website. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and go to the radio page, and uh, you'll find Dr. Chang's name there under our guest, and just click on that. That'll take you right to the, uh, the book. Uh, all right, we were uh, we've been talking about forensics, mm-hmm. and uh, we've talked about anatomy. We've talked about the the historical record. We've talked about the the accounts in the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, all pointing to this being the the actual uh, burial cloth of uh, of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, you were mentioning that uh, that um, people might say, okay, so so it's from the first century A.D. So it's a um, you know, it's the image of a crucifixion victim. Yeah. Why does it have to be Jesus Christ? Let's say, uh, for example, and I believe someone has suggested this, someone took a, um, uh, a dead body. Right. They actually put it through the rigors of a crucifixion, and right. then they laid well, it on first, this cloth. First of all, the person had to be alive. Uh, or else it wouldn't show up the, what showed up on, on Christ. It, the person would have actually had to be killed by crucifixion. Excellent point. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which is not a nice thing to do. No, no. <laughs> um, there's something else in terms of corroborating evidence, mm-hmm. and in the gospel accounts, um, they place a they place a um, a kind of a napkin, a cloth napkin, yeah. over the head of Jesus while he's still on the cross, just before right. they take him down. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about the significance of this folded napkin. Okay, uh, you did read that part of the book. Yes, <laughs> I. To me, that was probably the most fascinating thing I that that dawned on me. Um, it's there's in in again the Gospel of John, which gives you the the most detail of what happened uh, at and after the crucifixion, suggesting that John himself was part of all this. Um, what it states there when they came back in the when on Easter morning and found that the tomb was empty is that John mentions that the napkin or face cloth he found folded and put to the side, uh, but the grave clothes were still left there. Okay, so he made special mention of that, which has always puzzled people. Uh, why would John make mention of that? Well, there are a number of uh, reasons that people have given, and one of the reasons, believe it or not, is that, and this is believed by a, a number of uh, Protestant Christians, is that John was telling people that the shroud was a fake, <laughs> believe it or not. Hmm. And, and so this was something that's always been a bit of a hurdle for me when I'm trying to, co- trying to convey to Christians, Protestants primarily. Catholics have no problem with it. <laughs> uh, but Protestants, that, you know, this is the actual real thing. Well, what they say uh, about this napkin is that the napkin was supposed to be put over Jesus' head. And it was, and it's very typical when you're taking the body down from the cross. You the, you're going to wrap the um, the head with this cloth because you don't want to look at the face of a dead person. And then the body is wrapped, and then it's taken and and buried. And so, what is not mentioned in the Gospels is what happened when they brought this body 
uh, and they were in a in a real hurry okay and they brought this body to this temporary tomb it, he was not going to stay there they're going to move the body no uh, in all likelihood to the family tomb who knows maybe he would have been taken to the tomb that they put Lazarus in and so um and so this was all um you know all just preliminary this wasn't this was all temporary the wrappings and everything was all temporary and all that was done at the foot of the cross even before they moved the body now that's one of the things i thought was interesting is that i always thought the body was wrapped in the tomb but the body wasn't wrapped in the tomb it was wrapped at the foot of the cross then it was taken to the tomb okay if the body stayed wrapped we would not have the image on the cloth so if the cloth if the shroud is real that body had to have been unwrapped at the tomb and it had to be left there waiting for it to be rewrapped when the women came back later on mm. and uh and a lot of people don't realize that that the body was actually unwrapped by the men and laid across this cloth in order and ease and in a, such a state that the women could come back in and rewrap it properly. Right. So what had happened is that I believe John took the cloth off the head and folded it and put it to one side. Of course, it had to stay in the tomb because it had blood on it. So anything that was associated with the victim had to stay with the victim. And so and so John put this headcloth and he put it to one side. And when he came back the next day, or when he came back at the resurrection morning, uh, he saw this cloth still to one side, and he makes special mention of it. Now, many Protestant Christians say that that cloth was on Christ when he resurrected, and that's the mistake they're making. It wasn't on Christ. It had already been removed. Right. Uh, but they say it was on Christ. If it's on Christ, then there shouldn't be the image of the head on the shroud. And that's why they claim the shroud's not real. All right. Now, this napkin, mm-hmm. um, did this not show up in a uh, in uh, in the north of Spain? They've got the napkin. Right. <laughs> it's in Aviedo. Aviedo. <laughs> Again, the Sudarium of Aviedo. Yes. That's right. And it's in Spain, and it's dated... It has documentation all the way back to 600. Okay, long before. So, so they've got actual documentation that this cloth was there at, at the year 600. And it's claimed to have been the cloth that wrapped the head of Christ. It came, claims to have been that napkin. And uh, they've done forensic studies on that cloth. It's got blood on it, and it's got a blood pattern that is consistent with the wounds we see on the face on the shroud. Hmm. There you go. All right. Uh, further uh, corroborating evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's. We haven't touched on this. I mentioned it near the uh, the, the the beginning of the program, and that is the um, the carbon fourteen dating conducted in nineteen eighty eight. Yes. Uh, which, um, according to the carbon fourteen analysis, that placed the uh, the shroud somewhere in the 13th century. Right. 1200 to 1390-something. But there's a problem with the way that dating, that carbon dating test was conducted. Talk to me about that. Oh, um, that is fascinating. Um, 
because even people who have no understanding of the shroud um, but do know about carbon dating, they, in the history of carbon dating, they even have a chapter on dating the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> hmm. Because that's how significant dating the Shroud was. And they now realize and are saying that the results were overstated. The problem with carbon-14 dating is that there's some variables that you can never account for and so whenever an artifact is dated by carbon-14, you also have to have cooperating archaeological evidence before they will accept the carbon-14 dating. And what was very unusual about what happened with the shroud is that the carbon-14 dating was the only piece of scientific information that did not uh, cooperate the shroud. So if you've got a sea, an ocean of positive uh, results, and you've got one little drop which is negative, you, as a scientist and as any level-headed person, you would question that negative result. But that did not happen. Instead, that negative result completely overtook anything else that was ever done. It is wasn't until 2005 that they found out why it did not agree with all the other evidence. And the simple answer is they did not follow protocol. They did not follow the plan procedure that was agreed by everybody. Instead, the two people left to that, that had the uh, responsibility of cutting the cloth did not cut where they were supposed to. In fact, they argued for almost two hours in, while people were waiting for them to cut it until finally someone cut it. And they took the, the sample from the worst possible place you could ever take it. It was taken from a piece that was damaged, that was already ripped from a previous uh, sample taken, and in hindsight, they actually took it from a piece that was a rewoven, mended area that was rewoven back in medieval Europe. Because the, the shroud had been damaged in a fire. Oh, that didn't... That, that, that has no, the, no bearing that on wasn't it? This was the wear and tear of it when people were holding it. Okay, but it they... It was along the edge. But it was a patch job. It was a patch job, but it was a very, very good patch job. In fact, what they had done, and this, <laughs> the, the, the people who were doing it, when they, they patched it, they did not use pure linen because linen will not stain, and so you can't dye it. And so what they did is they mix it with cotton. There's no cotton on the cloth except at this area. And they mix it with cotton, and they stained it to look like old, and they put a mordant on it to fix the stain. That, those chemicals appear nowhere else on the shroud. Ah. And... Are we expecting further carbon-14 dating to be conducted on an appropriate section of the shroud at any point? No. And the reason for this is that in 2002, the Vatican uh, permitted in secrecy a complete restoration of the shroud, at which point, even though the textile experts who cleaned, completely cleaned it, 
and completely restored it. They removed wrinkles. They removed marks. uh, And they made it whiter. uh, And now it's stored. It's not folded. It's actually stored, splayed out in a huge um, glass-enclosed case, uh, which which has inert gas in it. Essentially, when that was done, that removed the shroud from any more physical examination because any physical examination could always be argued, for instance, that if there's too much carbon-14, you add it it to it when you preserved it, or if there's not enough carbon-14, then you got rid of it when you preserved it. Uh, We've got about two minutes before we head into another break here. Yeah. Uh, Have they been... Is is the DNA in the blood on the shroud intact? Could they test the mitochondrial and the nuclear DNA? No. No. And if they did, I would be suspect. I would... (laughs) Yeah. Because the, if they could, the mitochondrial DNA should show, obviously, that, that would show the, the maternal side, the mother, that would, would be Semitic. But then they, there's, there's a problem with mitochondrial DNA, and we can't get into that okay. now. That's my other book. All right. But, the, <laughs> but, but here's the interesting point, though. The nuclear DNA would have to be undetermined because, <laughs> you know, he didn't come from, he wasn't fathered by man, right? Well, so. we don't, he, he was still fathered. <laughs> There still had to be something that triggered the um, the development process from the zygote. Ah, okay. Let's uh, take another time out, come back. Okay. More to come on the Holy Shroud of Turn with Dr. Gary Chang from Redeemer University. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Dr. Gary Chang from Redeemer University, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... um, Again, if you'd like to uh, order a copy, you can go to the website www.custance.org, C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E dot org, C-U-S-T-A-N-C-E dot org. That stands for Arthur Constance, Custance, rather, the Arthur Custance Center for Science and Christianity. Um, how is this book being uh, being uh, welcomed by your, your peers? And I don't mean necessarily your peers at Redeemer College, University, which mm-hmm. is a Christian university, mm-hmm. but other, your other peers in the scientific community. Well, it's interesting. This book is, uh, what you actually have is a, is a sort of a pre-publication copy, and that's what we're selling right now. Uh, and I do have someone in Florida who's looking at promoting it uh, in, uh, in, in a large way. Uh, but it has, believe it or not, a lot of people have ordered it because of the interest, and um, I'm getting a, a lot of very positive um, feedback. Again, it's people are divided into two groups, you know, those who want to believe and those who want to believe who really think this is a fantastic way of looking at it. What, what role uh, does this artifact, this relic, mm-hmm. have in your faith? Did it, did it um, 
at the time, you said in the in the 90s you hadn't really heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure where you were in, in terms of your spiritual development at that point. Oh, I, I'm a bit uh, I'm a bit unusual. Um, although I'm not, don't think I'm all that unusual. My spiritual experience came alive when I was about 14, when I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. Mm. Long before I knew any theological reason why it shouldn't happen. <laughs> right. And that. My, uh, that just brought it alive. It's like I knew about Christ, but now Christ was in me. It was just fantastic. And anyone who's experienced that, I think people in the Alpha program, that's a very familiar program that people go to these days, the Alpha program, they have, they actually, they actually get, you know, re uh, you know, very staid Presbyterian Anglican people actually speaking in tongues and jumping up and down for joy. It's, it's not something that the Pentecostals have monopoly over. Hmm. And, uh, and that's really awoken my spirituality. Uh, and I've had absolutely, and I say absolutely, no doubt whatsoever in my assured salvation through Jesus Christ and my personal uh, experience with the Holy Spirit and the spiritual world. Uh, so with that, I went into science. And some people think, you know, science is, going, is a different type of, way, different way of looking at things. But for me, it just made my spiritual experience even more astounding. And, um, and when I saw this cloth and I started looking at it, um, it does not, in a sense, it, it, it really, if it were fake, it would not affect me, okay? But it's not fake, and it has, it's a really exciting thing to look at and to wonder about and to now try to envision what does it mean then for us to become uh, like Christ? Uh, are we going to change like he did? Are we going to have physical bodies like he did after the resurrection? I think we are. And I think this is just the beginning of the whole whole experience that's just going to last forever. Uh, so for me, it's fantastic. Why doesn't the Vatican make a bigger deal about the Shroud of Turin? They, they don't really come out and say this is the actual burial cloth. Because many of them don't believe it is. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's like, like, I just talked to you about my experience with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I know Christians who, who think that's from the devil. Right. Okay, right. so, you know, everyone's different. And God deals with people in different ways. And with me, this is how he dealt with me. I just think the shroud is real. I think it's, uh, it's the gospel message. I think it's God's love to us. And uh, quite frankly, you know, um, Islam doesn't get it. <laughs> right, right. Um, we just got about a minute and a half here. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. One that has been a stumbling block for many people uh, is the, um, in the Bible, no detailed description of what Jesus looked like. Mm -hmm. I, I think it refers, you know, that he wasn't, he wasn't an extraordinary looking no. individual. But the figure on the shroud would appear to be somewhere in the neighborhood of five foot eleven, maybe six feet. Uh, I've heard that complaint before. Uh, and the answer to that is that was the uh, average height at that time. It was. Okay. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> All right. And then secondly, very quickly, before we head into the break, the length of his hair. We know yes. that, that, uh, that uh, Paul, uh, Paul talked about long hair on men yep. being an abomination. Mm -hmm. Yet this figure has long shoulder-length hair. Yeah. That's because Jesus wasn't a Christian. Uh-huh. Right. He was a Jew. True. He had long hair. Jews have long hair. 
There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for tidying that up for okay. me because that's been a <laughs> that's been a stickler a stickling point for me as well. All right, we'll uh, take another time. I'll come back and we'll talk about the energy burst. Okay. This is the physical evidence for an actual resurrection event uh, that is recorded and coded on this particular piece of linen cloth, the holy shroud of Turin, with Dr. Gary Chang. Back with more in a moment here on the Conspiracy Show. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are into the home stretch with Dr. Gary Chang from mm-hmm. Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario, and uh, the book The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can get a copy at www custance.org c-u-s-t-a-n-c-e custance.org alright this is uh, where the rubber meets the road really um, and why this is not just any figure uh, image uh, on, on the shroud and that is it also answers the question how did the image get on the shroud and uh, you talk about an energy burst being yeah. responsible tell me more about this well the way the image is created, or the way the, the characteristics of the image, uh, first of all, it's a negative. Um, negatives function are, are created when a burst of light or burst of energy causes a burn mark of some sort, and so you get your negative. Uh, it also has on it um, three-dimensional information encoded within it, so it's not the type of burst that, of energy that we have any comprehension of. It is now extending beyond even our uh, the, the borders of physics. Uh, okay, so it's, it's, in fact, to me, we are now getting to looking at really cosmology and the creation of the universe to begin with. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the Big Bang Theory has only been accepted more recently. The Big Bang has a lot of problems with it still, and yet a lot of people think it's, it's the gospel truth. Um, but again, it, it doesn't answer everything. So what we've got in this case now is the actual physical evidence of something that could have happened when creation first occurred. So that's I think, is certainly worth looking into. But how did this image burst? Why would it happen? Well, in order to explain, at least from my perspective, I have to look at it both theologically and biologically. And so there are a number of assumptions I make that I say must be true. And essentially, to to narrow it right down to the crooks of the matter, I believe the body that Jesus had 
was free of sin, whatever that sin might have been, was free of sin. That's why he had to be a virgin birth, because anyone who's fathered by a male will not be free of sin. Okay, so sin travels through the sperm. Uh, so Jesus was not, uh, his body was initiated by the Holy Spirit, so he was free of sin. But the development of that body was a result of consuming molecules and atoms and nutrients from a world that was sinful. And so Jesus Christ, although he was without sin, his body was made up of things that were essentially confined to this sinful world. That was overcome by his willingness to die on the cross. Again, a number of things people don't, one of the things people don't realize is Jesus Christ was not just the Son of God. Jesus Christ was God. In fact, some of his disciples left him when he said that. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So that's a sticking point. It's even a sticky point for some Christians. But Jesus Christ, the body of God, was lying in the tomb. He overcame the effects of sin... And when life returned to that body, it allowed the atoms of that body to now reconfigure, to now have a uh, not only a, a morally sinless body, but a physically sinless body. And that change occurred at the very level of the very particle that that essentially links us with the supernatural world and it created a burst of energy that not only singed the cloth, but imparted to it three-dimensional information. And in order for this 3D information uh, to be on the cloth mm -hmm. without distortion, mm -hmm. any is there any indication where this energy burst would emanate from? What part of the body? Would it be it from would, every molecule in the body? It, it was very short distance or else you would see the inside of his body as well. It was very light, or the entire image would have been blackened. <laughs> so it would probably emanate it from every single um, molecule of his body, but of course only the surface ones had the, uh, the uh, energy far, reach out far enough to create the image. Is there anything, um, anything that we can any way we can reproduce I, something like this in a I laboratory the, the, i think the closest we can get is holograms holograms yeah so it's actually a holographic image explain I mean, what that means the significance of that oh it, well for one, one thing it could never have been painted right <laughs> to say the least right <laughs> it could never have been painted uh for me jesus christ and the spiritual world uh it's not just up there, it's right here with us. And, and things can flip in and out between the spiritual and the physical. And, and when it, that happens, there's often bright light associated with it. So when Jesus was on the mountain, he was transfigured. What did they describe? A very bright light. They couldn't even look at his face. When Moses was communicating with God on the mountain, it was a bright light, and when Moses came down, his interaction with God, the spiritual, his interaction, his, his face glowed so much, they asked him to cover it. 
Right, right. So there is a physical link between the spiritual, or we call it the spiritual, but it's really the invisible world that is behind the visible world. Uh, I, I want to go back to the holographic image. Mm -hmm. My very limited understanding of a holograph is, if you were to take a, a, a cut a little tiny piece of a holographic image, mm -hmm. all of the information in that little tiny piece or all of the information of the entire image is contained in that little piece. It doesn't matter how many times you cut that, the whole image into tiny pieces, all of the information of the whole is contained in each tiny piece. Well, that's interesting. I'm not really... <laughs> I, I mentioned holograph because it looks like a holograph. Mm. Uh, in fact, if you got a copy of my book, yes, right uh, here. and you look at the front cover, yes. it's, I, that's a picture of my replica taken, ah. taken at an angle. And you notice that it's very different to the picture face on. Right. It, it has a three-dimensional depth to it. Even in, when presented in a yeah. two-dimensional format. Right. Yeah, that is astounding. Was there some type of radiation associated with this resurrection event? Yes, there would have been some sort of radiant energy that was transmitted from the body because uh, that's the only way you can explain the image on the cloth. But this radiation would have probably been in no way related to the way we understand radioactivity today. Uh, would there have been some sort of, um, I don't know, nuclear uh, reaction, like a, a fusion type um Event? I would say probably not, because as soon as you start describing it in that fashion, you're describing radiation in the terms that we understand radiation to be. And, uh, but what we're probably looking at is something that has been described by many people, also described in Scripture, where uh, when any encounter with the Almighty God in this physical world, there's always some sort of radiation or light energy associated with it. Uh, the, the Mount Transfiguration, when Jesus changed into something, uh, changed into a, a glowing figure that they had to cover their eyes, or the time when Moses came down from the mountain after he'd been in direct contact with God, his face glowed so much they asked, they asked him to cover it. So there is some type of interaction between the non-physical world and the oh. physical world. Okay. Um, would this radiation be measurable? Could there be remnants of this radiation still in the tomb, still on the shroud? Probably not. If, uh, I think it was very short-lived. I think that and the reason why the image on the shroud is, is as uh, pristine or as uh, focused as it is is because it was a very quick flash and dissipated uh, right away. All right, so uh, there's no more opportunity to test the shroud. As you have said, the Vatican essentially uh, uh, sealed it, so there will be no more carbon-14 dating. Uh, is there anything then left to be, to be learned about the shroud? Well, I think what we need to learn now is more about this image. Um, the, it's the image on the shroud that authenticates it. It's not the cloth that authenticates it. Um, and, and quite frankly, the carbon-14 is just one way of dating. They've actually used other ways of dating the fibers and found that they're, at, they're as old as they should be. Okay, again, carbon-14 was done on a piece of cloth 
that was actually put into the shroud uh, in the medieval England. So the carbon-14 was correct. They just used the wrong sample. Um, but there are, uh, I believe, a, a whole way of looking at the world differently. Right now, science has really confined themselves to what we see, to what we believe to be the physical world. And they have actively prevented anything spiritual to come into it. And I think when scientists start to realize that there is a spiritual component to living matter, then we'll start to look at the universe differently. And I think it will be a complete change in worldview, and I think it would advance science considerably. Uh, are there many other scientists like yourself? Your background, again, is in, in biology. Mm -hmm. You have a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, are there other scientists that uh, are like-minded, that believe uh, that the Shroud is the genuine article? There are scientists who believe the shroud is genuine, uh, but I'm the only one I know of who is still actually a practicing scientist. Uh, a lot are retired, a lot are from the, um, the physical sciences or the nuclear sciences. Uh, I'm the one who's brought in both the biology and the theology and the shroud, and, and that is what's made a big difference. Uh, we are biological beings, and yet we are made in the image of God. And I truly believe that when Adam was created, uh, he was not to, um, he was created not to sin, and uh, he was created to become like God. And in fact, that's what Jesus said we would be. And I think that's what this entire experiment has been and that is to make us you know the sons and daughters of god and we're going to be that for eternity uh i am i'm trying to remember the um the uh the name of the uh, author i interviewed a number of years ago he may have been my first guest as i sort of began this journey into investigating mm -hmm. the shroud uh he's um he's an attorney and mm -hmm. um uh his name escapes me but he started out again trying to disprove that the shroud was authentic he was an avowed uh, agnostic or atheist and mm -hmm. then and after studying it he became a christian because yeah. he uh, this is uh, I'm, and i'm learning this is fairly fairly it, common it is very common in fact all the i was told by word of mouth by thaddeus trenigan that all the uh, scientists who went to uh, turin to study the shroud uh, I think like 20 out of 22 or something, he, gave, he said uh, most of them were agnostic, and they came back believers. Unbelievable. Uh, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Gary Chang, thank you so much for this. Well, thank you, Richard. And again, you can order the book at www.custance.com. Org. That's it for us. My thanks to Ian Robertson. Back next week with a brand new program, Don Jeffries, Survival of the Richest. Until then, so long. Move over, Aphrodite, and come on home.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.